Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human. Hi everybody. Hi. So we are at the end of season four. We have made it through. Yippee. Oh no, it's good to be here. It has been yeah, it's been good. It's been slightly manic, slightly busy, but it's actually great to have made it to the end of the season. I've enjoyed it. Have you? I have. It feels like we've been working on this for about six months because I think we actually started recording the first couple of episodes in like May or something crazy. Um, and yet you always feel really proud that you're really ahead of time and doing really well. And then you realise, no, everything is still last minute and mad and all the rest of it. But Actually, I think because it's been such a long season, it's felt really full. Um, and there's been so many ideas that I've not only enjoyed listening to, but I've also enjoyed carrying out into other aspects of my world and talking about. And it's been, yeah, it's been really good. Yeah, I feel like I need to listen back to some of them again. It's interesting when people, you record it a little ahead sometimes. Some of them are just before, some of them are quite a bit before. And then somebody says, oh, I just listened to that episode. And I'm thinking, oh, that was that was weeks ago in my head. What? <laughs> and they're asking a question about it or they're following up or you see something on social media. You're like, oh, I need to listen back and remember that bit. That's not the bit I picked up on. So it's fascinating what people glean or get from a conversation. Yeah, for sure. And actually on that. If you guys have been listening and got questions or got comments, we would love to hear your engagement. Is there anything that we've covered that you kind of would like us to dig in more with? Is there anything that you would like us to cover in more detail or pull on any threads? If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at beinghuman@eauk.org, um, or you can find us on any one of the social media platforms that we're in. We would love to hear from you. Yes, but just for clarity, if you've got questions, go to at Joe Frosty. I'm not interested in questions. I'm only interested in people saying nice things. Thanks. That's Glad really I clarified that. As well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you want an argument, you can come and have one with me on social media. That's there fine. it is. That sounds much okay. more like you. Okay. <laughs> okay, so what are we doing today? Today is our final episode of season four. What are we going to chat about, Peter? We're on a wrap-up episode, which really sounds like a great idea until you said, so what are we going to do in the wrap-up? So so I think we're going to reflect back on some of the people we've heard, but not just to summarize them. We are saying, hold on, where where are we? Where does this whole being human thing cohere together? And particularly looking at the cultural stories and how they kind of merge and come together in our lives. Where are the hook points? Where are the connection points? And how do we understand these cultural stories? Yeah, because I think... We've had such interesting people come and chat and they've brought their expertise or they've brought their experience, they've brought their stories and their learning. Um, and we can see how those things all thread together. But I think actually a lot of the time those interviews felt quite standalone, really interesting. But how does this all come together in this conversation that we want to have around what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to carry the likeness and the character of God in our beings? Um, and how are these cultural stories forming or deforming, changing our humanity as we go along? What have we heard or learned from the people that we've been chatting with over the last few months um, that help our understanding of this world that we're inhabiting? We do, and we've often used a Jenga analogy, but another one that we sometimes use is streams, cultural streams. So um, 
I think I remember the first time, like thinking about this when we were actually um, rafting. Um, and I know in the Rockies, but it was one of those things like, so where there was two water streams came together and there was a really clear kind of, you come out of the the kind of forest and the wooded areas and it's quite a dark kind of greeny kind of water. It's real rich color. And then this glacial stream comes in and it is kind of white. It's clearish, but it's really white. And I mean, as you look at them, they are like two absolutely radically different pieces of water have now come together in one river or stream in, in one area so they've merged but they haven't really merged they're flowing side by side but actually as we went on down on the raft and if you stuck your hand on one side literally it was quite warm it was quite okay temperature water and you stuck your hand on the other side the glacial stuff it was absolutely freezing but over a course of a few hundred meters uh, maybe a kilometer down the river they'd all merged completely together and you couldn't tell between them you might find little cold pockets or warm pockets but fundamentally the waters have merged together and then all the time you were saying little tributaries come in and little streams and brooks and whatever coming in and and the analogy we'd use was that you've got that initial river secularism coming down we talked about that story and then suddenly you get like something like radical individualism coming in and initially you can see oh that's such an individual story and then that's such a thing coming from our secular stories but then in time, they just begin to merge together. It becomes really hard to see where the threads have come from and that, where the different currents have come from. But they're all bubbling along together. And if you want to add postmodernism into that, that's maybe one of those tributaries coming in. And over time, these stories just get all mingled together in the water. And you can see little elements, but but fundamentally, they're all merging in together. And that's one of the problems. So we're doing a bit of analysis and saying we think these are feeding in, but it's really hard to see the individual currents, maybe. Yeah. And I think... What we want to do, therefore, is we want to pull a little bit about some of these kind of titles, names of these streams, whether that's secularism or expressive individualism, which aren't terms that we, well, you and I might use them in everyday language, but most normal people don't. Um, they are so necessarily... saying we're not normal? <laughs> yes, Peter, there is no doubt about that at all. <laughs> Devastated to learn this piece of information. <laughs> I think that's a given. Um, but... But actually, we may live in those currents a lot of the time. So let's let's explore what those stories are, but also how are we encountering them in our world, but also some of the insights that we were hearing from some of the people that we were interviewing. Um, and I think actually I, where we want to start in this is, is actually where in our book we kind of end, which is the top of the Jenga Tower, this this kind of top heavy chaotic crisis space that we're living in in our world today everything feels really unsettled and unstable and yet um my pastor was quoting scott mcknight recently so i do not know which book it was from um but it, apparently he says that people change on a quest or in a crisis and I think I wonder whether or not the reason why we change in a crisis is because the world that we thought we were inhabiting, the stories that we thought we were living, have now been proven to be false or not good enough or strong enough. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in crisis. So we're forced to change. We're forced to reevaluate. We're forced to go back and go, actually, the story I thought I was living in doesn't work. And the fact is, at the moment, we are seeing crisis after crisis after crisis emerge. And yet, actually, as Christians, we're being encouraged to be non-anxious presence, to be hope-filled people, because we do inhabit a story that doesn't go into crisis. 
we are inhabiting a story that says things happen, the world is tumultuous, but we live in the in the story of the rock of ages, the king of kings, and we don't need to be afraid. So we want to look a little bit at some of the crises of our storylines and some of the ideas that some of our interviewees were chatting about and, and pulling on so we can see where the hope and the, the fullness of the God story might lead us and what yeah. it means to be human. Absolutely. And we so totally. And the first story that we've always we always point to, you know, is secularism. We're saying, and you know, what is secularism? That belief is up for grabs. I mean, the, the history of that is that reason replaces religion. We don't need your religion anymore. Science and enlightenment and reasonable thinking has replaced the need for God, and that the kind of plausibility structures, what it's possible for us to believe, have radically changed. Five hundred years ago, almost impossible not to believe in God. Today, it feels like it's almost impossible to believe in God. And in as much that faith is permitted, it has to be privatized. You can have your, if you really need this faith thing, just you keep it over there in the corner. And I think that does kind of capture some aspects of the world in which we're living in. And the person I thought was interesting on that was Justin Brierley, was pushing mm. to say that things are changing a little bit in this conversation. It's not as simple as that. Um, but he used a really interesting sort of title, didn't he? He kept talking about the new theists. But we didn't really press into him what he meant by that. So who are the new theists and what are they doing in this secular conversation? So I'm not going to argue, but I do think I put that title in. He is talking about the collapse okay. of the new atheists. But oh, I'm going to take okay. it. You're very excited about the new theists. I like, I, but yes, he totally agrees with this idea that there are a group of people who don't yet believe in God in the way we would, we would want to say that, but who are much more open to it. Jordan Peterson is one example. I don't know if he mentioned him, but that's a definite example out there. Tom Holland, who's written this book, Dominion, who I think described himself as agnostic, so not an atheist, but not sure, and moving on the direction in. And Louise Perry, who wrote the book, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, The Case Against the, the Sexual Revolution, I think is the name of it. Somewhere on my desk, I'll find it in a moment. So she is fasting, seems to be becoming increasingly open to faith, the more interviews I listen to her doing. Nice. Um, why are we seeing the secular stories struggle? What's Why is that in crisis, do you think? This is rubbish. <laughs> because it's not very good. It's not a very coherent story. I don't like, you know, I'm, I'm laughing slightly, but it, it didn't replace it with a very structured set of story. What it did was begin to say everything's contestable and, and is getting pulled apart. It's not like it said, okay, we're going to get rid of religion and we're going to replace it with this coherent story. It said, we've all got a reasonable, enlightened perspective, but it turns out we've got loads and loads of different reasoned and apparently enlightened perspectives. And so it doesn't replace it with a single coherent story. And I think that's the real challenge about it. I was um, chatting to somebody a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the idea that there's no such thing as common sense and there's no such thing as common ground because when the secular story said everything, everything can be debated, everything can be pulled apart, everything is up for grabs, commonality went out the window. There is no agreement about what is good, what is true, what is real. Everything 
is fractured and debatable, which means that common sense is not a given. Common ground is not a given. And therefore, you have nothing to build your life or a communal life upon. Um, For all its failings, at least in the Western world, when it was built along uh, on the foundation of Christianity in the church, at least there was commonality. It it was flawed and authoritarian and corrupt and everything else. Um, but at least it was there was an agreement by taking that out and not putting the God story back in. We've taken the bottom layer away. And so everybody is is able to make it up as they go along. Yeah. And I think one of the complications that we've touched upon before is that our secular culture is full of bad secularists, by which I mean almost half the population believe in the resurrection. Almost half the population still say they're Christian. We have a we kind of like, well, what does that really mean? But that that's probably the same half who believe in the resurrection. That's a fascinating thing to believe in in an apparently secular culture. Mm. Now, I'm not saying those people. Oh, I, it's not for me to say whether they're Christians. What they mean by that, we don't know all that they mean. But that's an incredibly interesting group of people to want to have the conversation with. And so we're not as secular as we pretend to be because we want to keep pulling on the Christian story. Now, people might not say they're actively doing it, but they're presuming an understanding of equality and about human rights and about human dignity that draws from that story, even if they're not quite as aware as we might hope they are of that. But that's on us. I get excited about that thinking positively. How can we build that bridge again with people rather than thinking kind of negatively, oh, well, you're just nicking from the Christian story. Well, yeah, of course you are, because you're still totally shaped by it. Parliament still has people, you know, prayers at the start. We still have the Lord's spiritual and the House of Lords. We still have so much of our legal system and our cultural set of values. People talk about British values and like, what does that mean? And once you separate them out from religion, we're really struggling to say what a British value is. I have no idea. That's a meaningless phrase. Most of them are drawn from Christianity, and when they're not, they get contested. And so I find this whole space totally fascinating. And I would say this, and then Karen Swallow Pryor, I think, pulled on that then as well with the evangelical imagination piece, because she said this does shape so much of our thinking, and it does, like, is the waters we still swim in to a large degree? Again, as secular culture, we're very bad secularists. Yeah. But also she was saying almost the same in reverse, that so much of what was assumed to be Christian was actually much more cultural. Um, and so there's been almost the river analogy in, in the Christian world where our cultural stories and our Christian values kind of merge. And again, she was almost saying this, the same in reverse, that saying, actually, we've got to make sure that we we know our story and why we believe these things and why we practice them and and not allow some of the kind of the habits or the stories that run counter to the story of God and to the story of Jesus and who he invites us to be in to become this sort of Christianese. Yeah, because one of the reasons I think you and I are so kind of averse to the language of culture war is so much of culture is Christian as influence, and also so much that calls itself Christian isn't very Christian in what it's doing. And so on both counts, we're saying that we don't want to have a culture war in that sense. We want to build bridges with what is good in culture, and we need to actually challenge some within our own community say, we're not doing this in a very Christian way. No, absolutely.
secularism mm. is our first dominant story in the streams. The second one that comes in that we often signpost to is expressive individualism. And um, to be honest, I found this quite a new phrase to me when we were starting to pull at the uh, being human lens and some of the cultural stories. I recognise the individualistic story, but the expressive part was quite new to me. Um, so what do we mean by expressive individualism? Why is it here? And how is it creating crises? <laughs> I like the way you flipped that back. Well, thanks. Secularism casts off the overarching stories, um, God or a big story that we all uh, buy into. And so naturally, then you begin to turn inwards in that. And so individualism in its various forms, you know, says, look, it's about me. It's about my story. We all have a set of individual stories around that. It's about being authentic and being true to ourselves. But it's that authenticity piece. Then if we're being true to ourselves, we have to express that out into the world. We have to live into it. And ultimately leads to quite a kind of potentially picking and choosing consumerist style where we're like, well, I would like a bit of this and a bit of that. And I'm going to put those things together. And then I tell people who I am and I express myself and need a platform from which to do that. Because we heard that, didn't we, from Tim Mackey. So Tim Mackey was talking so beautifully about the nature of humanity to be image bearers, to project an image out into the world. And that in Genesis, it is clear that the image that we project out into the world is that of God, um, that we are to bear his image, to reflect his nature and his character out into the world. But if we take God out of the equation, we're still projecting. Um, it's just that expressive individualism asks you to project yourself in an expressive individualist world. You do you, you be true to yourself, you live your happy, you claim the main character of your story and out you go. And and it's it's because of what it is to be human, and yet it's become twisted and malformed. And actually, we are incapable, I think, of knowing truly who we are if we aren't receiving that identity from God. And that's, for me, where it goes so wonky. Yeah, and we had a couple of great interviews about that. I mean, I think Rachel just totally landed that for us, her understanding of youth work, uh, the phrase that she said this, that young people are connection-seeking missiles. That's going to be unforgettable for me. But it's so true. It goes to, like, we might have said it different, like we're relational beings, we're made in the image of relational God. We know that, but just that phrasing is so helpful. Um, and she and then Will van der Hart was picking up the importance of belonging, absolutely critical to the work he's doing in terms of uh, mental health and particularly helping leaders in this space around that, dealing with shame and dealing with guilt, mm. um, but also in terms of the importance of, of community uh, in terms of our mental health. So both of those uh, interviews really picked on some of the themes or the challenges that expressive individualism has led to in our culture, loneliness and isolation. Um, and the wrestle that we have and finding our sense of identity and belonging. Yeah, I, I I found Will's framing about shame as being a, a fear of of unbelonging. So if if Rachel's right, which we think she is, that actually teenagers, absolutely, but actually all human beings are connection-seeking missiles. We want affirmation, we want connection, we want relationship, we want intimacy. We are hardwired to be in community. And actually, 
we are seeing this storyline of shame, of loneliness, of isolation, of detachment, of mental ill health. And it goes back to, I love the quote, Tim Keller, to be loved and not known is the most superficial of loves. To be known and not loved is our deepest fear. What if I'm rejected? What if I'm seen and known and deemed not good enough? At the heart of so many of the crises that we are seeing in relationship um, and in individuals, it comes down to this idea of if somebody knew me, they could not love me. What we're so passionate about church communities as places that respond to that while acknowledging that so often the church has also said, ah, come and just be authentic and be who you are, and then doesn't actually engage with some of those deep needs and belongings. Has said, hey, come and consume and come and, hey, how was church for you? Well, I didn't get anything from the sermon, or I didn't really enjoy the worship. It's like an acceptable response. It's so individualistic and, and a deep commercialism often in churches that has been really unhealthy. And so we're we're saying absolutely we believe in the church and all its faults is part of the solution to the need for belonging, but acknowledging that so much of that expressive individualism has, I want to say, infected and kind of cautious. It certainly impacted the church, we, like it is in our churches as well. Permeated our church. Permeated. What a great Good compromise word. No, I'm super comfortable permeated it to be that's it postmodernism so we've talked about secularism we've talked about expressive individualism the third kind of dominant story is postmodernism i thoroughly appreciate it chris watkins kind of at the at the high level he's such an interesting thinker and actually i think he expressed it really well i don't think it was a particularly academic interview but he is incredibly bright and he's interested in the french literature and how some of that has impacted our entire university systems and brilliantly writes about that in his book on biblical critical theory but then he landed it in the interviews with us and really tried to help us root that and connect it um which i i really loved and how he did that because this kind of tendency to deconstruct, to tear things apart. We see it all around us every day. Sexuality and gender is one of the obvious places, but at every level, everybody wants to tear the thing down and say, this thing isn't good enough. We're really great at canceling other people, really great at saying, you're not up to standard. You said one thing wrong, you need to be got rid of, but we don't know what to do with grace and forgiveness and rebuilding in any shape or form. Um, so he was really helpful. But then Natalie and Damalola, they helped us land that in some of the practical conversations around class and around race and what this actually looks like. Yeah, and I think they were both really fascinating, weren't they, in this whole idea of um, what does it mean to be rooted in a place, in a time, um, and in a body, and what impact does that have in our own humanity and in the cultures and the communities around us? Um, because postmodernism either wants to say none of that is relevant um, and that you can just make yourself up as you go along or they want to say yes but it but also it's your heritage and it's it's about deconstructing power and it's about making sure that everything is equal and flat and there's some real goodness in some of that conversation deconstructionism is about tearing down some of the injustices in our world but I think what Damalola and and Natalie were were doing so masterfully in their in their experiences and in their storytelling 
was talking about the alienation that can come in a in a space where you aren't of the same culture you don't come from the same place or that you've spent so much time moving from place to place what does home and what does what does belonging look like in those spaces and Natalia I thought was really really helpful in talking about what it means to be a minority or what it means to be a stranger in a place because she was talking about being a woman and being a single woman walking into a really male environment and wanting to retreat, wanting to come out of that space, wanting to deconstruct and pull it apart and say, this is awful and I don't want to be here anymore and I'm going to walk away. And then actually coming to the conclusion that says, if I'm not in this space, if I don't walk in as a minority, nothing's ever going to change. And actually, uh, these people are, are my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is my family. This is my church. This is community. This is really messy. But if I don't invest here, if I don't kind of make this my place and be present and be near, how is there ever going to be change or transformation? And I thought, I thought what she shared was really, really helpful. Yeah, I think they really helped us anchor those stories. Um, but but even throughout the course of this series, we have seen when you think about this kind of post-truth world, truth is an objective, you have your truth, and I have my truth. You think of some of the bigger stories that have come up in our news cycle, I've really challenged that as the, there was a Russell Brand uh, saga and events and people are like, he gets out first and puts his story out and then there's a counter story and people are like, well, what do we believe? There are the events going on in the Ukraine war over the last year or more, like two years now. Again, you get the video analysis and things coming out. You get ChatGPT advancing in its video stuff that's going to be able to do deep fake videos of almost anybody. And you're like, well, we're so visual. You can't, what is trustworthy? What can be believed? And and Israel and, and Palestine and events in there have gone on. And again, the video or the footage or the commentary coming out. And so there's constantly, as we hit the election season, we know all this is coming again. Narratives coming out and we're going, we, we can't process, we can't assess what is true. And that becomes kind of overwhelming and is what has fed so much then into this crisis moment. It certainly feels to me. I'm going, I, I used to like the news. I'm a bit of a news junkie. I just now almost, not, I can't, it's not quite, I can't be bothered, but I really struggle because I'm like, we need to verify. I don't almost trust any sources anymore. Sometimes we're even on the inside of a news story, you and I, and our work with, with Evangelical Alliance, where we say we've given them this statement. It's so interesting how somebody reports that differently and they've got an angle, they've got an edge to it. And so it becomes very difficult, I think, just to work out what's true anymore. Mm. Um, and so we find ourselves in this crisis moment where there's a perpetual state of stories coming. There's a cost of living crisis, there's a war, um, there's an energy crisis, there's a financial crisis, there's a political crisis. I mean, I think Western democracy is seriously up for grabs at the minute. That we're like so many questions being asked because we don't trust our political leaders anymore and what they're telling us. And if we don't trust them and we don't, there's, there's, it's not that we don't trust the voting system, but there are serious questions have been asked and the influence around elections. Um, like, so the whole system's credibility begins to diminish and that makes it very difficult to govern. And so that's, anyway, we're in the yeah, permanent state no, of I, crisis. <laughs> I agree. Um, a conversation for another day. Um, I was just thinking that actually really recently, my, my daughter's 11 and, um, she is a complete news junkie. Um, she's actually hilarious and has been forever. Uh, she is she is my daughter. Um, but we hadn't let her access 
uh, the BBC and, and news outlets um, independently before. But now she's in secondary school and I was like, OK, fine, access. And, and I just realised why I hadn't, because um, literally the first the first news story she uh, opened up and she turned around to me and she said, Mummy, what does what does the word rape mean? R-A-P-E. And she hadn't come across it and she didn't know what it was. And yet it was the first title in a headline. And I we talked about it and I said, this is this is why you hadn't been able to access it, because the horrors of humanity are tend to be in our news. And up until now, I haven't wanted you to know just how bad life can get and how heartbreaking it is. And so we've been talking over the last few weeks because this is now she now is consuming news and she is finding out how awful the world is. And what I'm enjoying about it is that even as she's looking, I get to tell her a story of hope. I get to tell her a story that kindness and love and generosity are also incredibly prevalent in this world. And that news headlines are often about crises because they're sudden and they're unexpected. But actually to be human is to have hope um, and have purpose and to have power and freedom in this world. But we cannot allow ourselves to get overwhelmed by just how broken our world is, but to get hopeful that we follow a God who came to save and redeem and recreate our world in his image um, and to restore what is good and beautiful. But it is really hard to navigate when everything feels like it's crashing in. Yeah, so if you've ever been where rivers are in flood, go back to our streams where the three are combining and when they're in flood, they erode the bank. They they kind of can just like like recast whole sections of, of, of the riverside and the bank and even into rocks and stones and trees and catch them up. And it's like a torrent. You can't imagine how to get across it or what to do about it. Um, and it feels overwhelming. And yet at the same time, the story I think we want to tell is that this is fundamentally restricted to the valley, the larger creation in which God put this, a larger kind of cultural landscape. Um, and yes, this stream can appear at this moment, like almost uncontrolled and overwhelming. And yet it is still running within the larger picture that God created. And one of the stories that we've thought about before is, is this idea of trophic cascade. Um, people might have heard of this idea. This is the wolves in Yellowstone Park. So when they got rid of the wolves in Yellowstone Park, the whole park changed. And when they introduced, I think it's as little as uh, 41 wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone Park in 1995 after nearly 70 years of new wolves. Um, and they were seen as predators. They had no upside. Why would you bother with wolves? But actually, when they were reintroduced, the deer and the elk could no longer munch away just at the trees right down in the valley beside the river. And so they kind of chased them on because they were going to eat them. That's just the reality of it. But as they <laughs> moved in, the trees there began to grow in those areas. And those roots came down and stabilized the riverbank. And as they came, then the birds and songbirds came back in. And as the wolves kept things moving, there were more rabbits and mice and hawks and weasels came in. And then the eagles came down and they would feed on those. And that the whole ecosystem, the beavers came and they cut the, they ate down the trees that formed different from bits of the river where other parts of the ecosystem improved and basically the whole thing radically changes with the reintroduction of the 41 wolves why do i tell that story why does that interest me because i think that's our role as christians is to be involved in that trophic cascade it doesn't take massive numbers of people to re-engineer the ecosystem 
not only did the whole river system change, it actually changed the water quality so that it could be used in the town nearby. Like the impact was unbelievable. And we have this Christian cultural capital. We have this ability to make change. We are a small number of people. We are always going to be the creative minority on the fringes coming in. But our mission, our job, our role is to be missional, is to have an impact. Mm -hmm. We are to be good news. We are to be a light to the surrounding world. It is not a privatized come and join our special club. It is always to make an impact on the whole culture around us, not just on people. We are here. Um, we are kingdom carriers. We are bringing about cultural renewal on the largest possible scale to riff off Psalm 1 trees of life and dignity are planted by streams of water bearing their fruit in season we are leaves of peace and justice that do not wither and so it is our role to stabilize the riverbank to bring kind of shape and form to a river that still has to flow in God's good valleys and creation amen so as we come into land this has been a season of listening and we have loved engaging with so many different people and their expertise and their stories, giving their little slice of this massive question of what does it mean to be human? How is it that you matter? How is it that we matter to each other? How is it that it matters that you are here and now? And how is it that the difference that we make in the world matters? That's been the conversation and the journey that we've been on this season Today has been that framing about pulling down some of these ideas and some of these stories and rooting them back into our lens, our way of seeing who we are in the world that we're living, whether that's significance, connection, participation and presence, looking at some of these cultural stories and pulling again on the richness and the fullness of the God story. Obviously, we are going to mention the fact that you can dig even deeper into these ideas by getting hold of Being Human, our latest book, A New Lens for Our Cultural Conversations. It's available through all major retailers. You can find out more at beinghumanlens.com forward slash book. In the meantime, you can always li listen back on the back catalogue of the podcast. There's a new video series uh, launching, which is a six part video series exploring some of these ideas that you can do in small groups in your churches and in your context. We're going to say goodbye for a little while until we're back with season five. But please do keep in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Peter, any passing final comments? No, just go be human and be blessed. <laughs> Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Bye.